What would you say if some Christians you knew were tortured and then lost their home? Two weeks ago, the Christians in the city of Mosul in northern Iraq, where they've lived for more than 1,600 years, were told they had until July the 18th to convert to Islam, pay a special tax, leave, or, quote, they would have nothing but the sword. There were, at that point, about 30,000 Christians in Mosul. That's about 10 days ago. But then the jihadists changed their minds. Paying the tax was no longer an option. All Christians were told by loudspeaker that they all had to leave the next day or be killed. Can you imagine? The Arabic letter for N, Nasara, meaning Christian, was spray-painted on their houses with stencils declaring those properties to be the property of the Islamic State. Monks from a nearby monastery that had stood there for centuries were allowed to take only the clothes that they were wearing. And they were told, you have no place here anymore. This morning, for the first time in over 1,600 years, there are no Christians left in the city of Mosul. Most of them have fled east and north to the region of Kurdistan. They have suffered much, and many of them are now left without shelter or possessions traumatized and fearing for their lives. Now, these people are our brothers and sisters in the faith, even though we don't know them. Now, we don't normally do this kind of thing at Grace Church, but I've received a letter this week from an organization, Christian organization, uh, appealing for help for those Iraqi Christians. And if you'd like to join with me and my wife in sending emergency relief packs, which are 70 pounds each, 70 pounds each to a pack for a family, then please do read this letter afterwards and just make a note on the back of how much you'd like to donate. I'll leave it there by our offering box. Now that's Mosul. What about suffering as a Christian in Manchester? Now, we don't really compare, do we? And yet, let's not make the mistake of just sort of wringing our hands and saying, oh, poor us, we don't suffer enough. Because we mustn't dismiss our context lightly either. But here's the problem I've been struggling with all week. Let me share my problem with you. What are the principles about suffering as a Christian in First Peter that speak to all of us, whether we're in Mosul or Manchester? What are the principles that will apply across the board to God's people, whether they're in a place of tolerance and religious freedom or a place of intolerance and extreme persecution. What are these principles that we can pull out from this section? And I think there are three. And they are the paradox of suffering, the promise of suffering, and the privilege of suffering. The paradox, the promise, and the privilege of suffering. Now here we are, first of all, the paradox of suffering. A paradox, as I'm sure you know, is a statement that appears to contradict itself, but is actually still true. Peter says two things here, which I think are paradoxical. In verse 14, just look at this again, verse 14. He says, if you are insulted because of the name of in humility and suffering to the cross shoulder. At that moment, this passage says, the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God rests on you. You're not alone. He's there with you. In a special way, God values and cherishes the mockery and insults that are put on his people because he is with them at that moment. 
rejected by people, God is present. That's the promise that Peter extends to our friends in Mosul who've been driven out and to us here in Manchester. So he says, there is a bit of a kind of caveat that goes along with this. Don't suffer as a criminal or even as a meddler, but suffer as a Christian, verse 15 and 16. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Now, I guess it's pretty obvious that we, people who follow God shouldn't be suffering as a murderer or a thief or a criminal. And if you did, then, well, to be honest with you, that's your own fault. You get what's coming. Those kind of crimes carry their own penalty in society. But what about this fourth one? Suffering as a meddler. A busybody. Someone who interferes with other person, people's affairs. Could it be that Christians sometimes suffer as meddlers? Sometimes do we suffer because we're irritating people, not because of the good news, but because of our attitude. Not because of God's standards, but because we're actually quite arrogant. Or because we interfere with other people's behavior instead of addressing them with the truth. Now, let me give you one example of this that I think is becoming more and more live in our context here, and it is human sexuality. This is becoming the first thing that somebody will ask you if they find out you're a Christian. What do you think about homosexuality? Now, listen, by its nature, sexuality is one of the most tender, personal, and deeply private and passionately held subjects. We should not expect people to live the Christian sexual ethic if they're not following Jesus. We should actually be expecting that they'll do the very opposite. And if we major on an issue like homosexuality, if we blog about it and talk about it a lot in the public square, if we talk about it more than the Bible does, by the way, the Bible only mentions homosexuality seven times, If we go into the public square on that issue and not on all the other good things we could major on, what do people think? I think they think, you're meddling. You're you're interfering. Who do you think you are? So if somebody asks me the question, what do you think about homosexuality? My first response would be, do you believe that Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead? Because if he did, all our lives need to change. Everything changes. And if he didn't, well, who cares what I believe? And if somebody persists with the question, I would also say, you know, it's none of my business. I'm not a meddler. Don't suffer as a criminal, or even as a meddler, but suffer as a Christian. Suffer for doing good, for representing Jesus. So we thought about the paradox of suffering. We thought about the promise of suffering. But how are we Christians who are suffering going to live? Peter says... You've got to view suffering as a privilege. A privilege. First of all, because suffering brings glory to God. Look at verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God. You bear that name. Praise God. I'm suffering for you, Lord. It brings glory to him. Now, this is a mysterious thing but I've observed it many times. There are some situations in life where suffering will glorify God more than anything else. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. 
there are some situations where suffering brings more glory to God than anything else. And this, I think, is one of the problems with a teaching that's sweeping parts of the world, particularly Africa, but other parts of the world too, that is known as the health and wealth gospel. This message is that God wants you to be healthy and prosperous right now. Now, one of the problems with that is if you were always healthy and wealthy and never had any problems and never suffered, what is the watching world going to think? Well, you're only following God because it's good for you. It worked out. Anyone would follow that. Believe this and you'll get a million pounds. Okay, where do I sign? But if a Christian suffers patiently, well, graciously, long, Waiting for God. Now, there's something that the world doesn't understand. Suffering well is, is kind of counterintuitive. It brings glory to God. And this may be your calling here today. Maybe now someone here is suffering, and the way you do it will actually bring glory to God. Praise him. You've got that, that privilege. And secondly, and really weirdly, suffering is a sign of salvation. Look at verse 17 with me. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household, the church. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, this doesn't look like a privilege, does it? What he's really saying is, judgment is beginning now with the church. Good news! You're being judged is that what you want for your life? Depends what you mean by judgment. This is the action of a judge in determining whether somebody is guilty or innocent, whether they need to be acquitted. And what he's saying is, Peter's saying, God's judgment, his action as a judge, begins here and now in this life. And as he looks at the suffering of his people, he sees testimony. He sees witness. He sees evidence of their genuineness. And his judgment <clears throat> will be to acquit them. Now, the New Testament teaches that there is a judgment on Christians as well. What we did with our lives. Some people will be saved, but kind of by the skin of their teeth. Paul says to the Corinthians, some will be saved like they escaped through flames. You know, they knew Jesus, they were forgiven, but they did nothing with the rest of their life. James says that we who teach will be judged more strictly, presumably because we could lead other people into error. Our sin and failure has impact on more people. So we will be judged, Christian friends. That's part of grace. It's difficult for anyone to be saved. But the privilege, the promise of suffering, is that suffering Christians will be. God looks at it and gives it his seal of approval. Therefore, Peter says, continue, commit yourself to God by continuing to do good. Verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And of course, this is the one thing you don't want to do when you're having a hard time, is continue to do good. What, do you, what happens to you when you suffer? You want to go in your cave and have lots of me time. You want to eat lots of comfort food, chocolate and red wine, and watch escapist movies. You want to cry on the phone to your mum. You want to book a holiday. 
You want to retreat from people because you've been hurt. You basically want to stop doing good. When we suffer, there is a physical, almost a physical pull to self-protection that is incredibly powerful. And Peter says, he knows that's coming, and he says, commit yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. Continue to get out there. Continue to be involved in people's lives, although they may hurt you. Continue to expend your resources for other people, even though you're scared you're going to lose your resources. One of our uh, members here in the church works as a street pastor out in the, in the small hours of Friday and Saturday night. She's there on the streets of Manchester with her colleagues, helping drunks and homeless people and looking after them and trying to speak a word from time to time about Jesus. And those street pastors, even though they do a power of good, are vilified sometimes, threatened. Intimidated, bullied, mocked, scorned. What is the temptation? Probably to quit. Peter says, commit yourself to your faithful creator, continue to do good. One of my best friends, who was from a mixture of Irish and uh, Tamil background, committed his life to Jesus when he was 17 years old. And a couple of years later, his dad threw him out of the house. Didn't speak to him for more than a decade. Rejected by your own father. What's the temptation? Self-protection. Peter says, no, no. Commit yourself to your faithful creator. Continue to do good. Continuing to do good while suffering is completely unique in this world. It is counter-cultural. It prompts the question, why are these people so different? And this is what happened in the middle of the second century. A great plague, an epidemic, swept through the Roman Empire for the second time. There was a huge death rate. The pagans were terrified. Their belief system gave them no resources to deal with it. And at the first onset of the plague, they pushed the sufferers away from them and ran for the hills, even sometimes from their nearest and dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping to avoid the spread and contagion of the final disease but they found it difficult to escape. Now, what about the Christian response? This persecuted small group there in the middle of the second century. This is a quote from a letter written in the year 260. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pain. Many, in nursing and caring for others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. The best of our brothers and sisters lost their lives in this manner, a number of elders, deacons and laymen winning high commendation, so that death in this form, the result of strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. You see what happened? Those Christian people, they'd read this letter. They were ready to lay down their lives to give life to others. They were ready to embrace the plague victim, to to care for them. And their faith gave them resources that nobody else in the world had. 
And actually, that's one thing that turned around the whole Roman Empire a couple of centuries later. These people had followed Jesus. They grasped the paradox. Suffering now, glory later. Insults now are a blessing. Shame is an honor. They grasped the privilege of suffering and they'd look forward to Jesus. So, what about us? What about us? I've just got three questions for us. First one is, where am I suffering? If you're a Christian here today, I know not all of us are. Some of you are looking into the faith. Where are you suffering as a Christian? Here are some places that Christians suffer in our culture. One of them is remaining single. You know, there's not an enormous pool to fish in, is there? Uh, Some of you may feel that the clock is ticking. Maybe the biological clock. Maybe you feel, you know, Lord, it's time now. I've been faithful to you. I haven't met that Christian spouse I was hoping for. I've got the T-shirt. Why so long? Why is it so uncertain? Others have remained celibate in a culture that is over-sexualized. Most of the voices in your culture are screaming at you that the only way to be satisfied is through sexual fulfillment at all costs. And abstinence is seen as very weird. That is suffering as a Christian. There's also being ostracized. Now, this takes different forms depending on how old you are. We have a 13-year-old in our family who is learning to follow Jesus. He's the only Christian in his class. There don't seem to be many in his whole year. He went to his friend's house to play video games. The boys put on an 18 game. And some of these video games would make your hair curl. The boys put on the game and he he went and stood outside the room. And they just carried on playing it. So he came home. When you're 13 years old and desperate for friends, that's a kind of suffering for Jesus. What about university students? The party lifestyle, the binge drinking, casual sex. What is wrong with you? You can experience suffering, insults, and uh, exclusion as a Christian. Now, when you get older, it's a bit more subtle. But it's still about rejection. It's still about people not liking you. It can be about losing respect. Christian journalist Dan Walker recently uh, covered the World Cup and during the course of his work he he ran a piece on players in the World Cup who were Christians and expressed their faith. Running out on the pitch and praying or celebrating a goal by praising God. Now that short piece that was shown as part of many hours of World Cup coverage generated uh, more contemptuous and mocking comments than almost anything else. There are increasing levels of that kind of low-grade hostility in our culture. Where, let me ask you, where are you suffering? It's not Mosul, it's Manchester. But it is real. So let me ask, where are you suffering as a believer? Where are you experiencing the paradox, the promise, and the privilege? Now, somebody may say, in all honesty, I'm not. I'm just not really facing any kind of pushback. Or reaction to being a Christian. So I want to ask you a question. Why are you not suffering? Why are you not suffering in some way for following Jesus? Because I think at some level we all should be. 
Now, it might be that you're not suffering because you live in a Christian ghetto. Now, we've talked about this once before. There's an area in Manchester that's known as the Christian ghetto because they only rent houses to Christians. Now, on one level, there's nothing wrong with living there as long as you're not actually also living in a Christian bubble. You never mix with anybody who doesn't know Jesus. All your friends are Christians. You go to work, but you don't really talk to anyone else. You know, we've got to be sure that our lives are rubbing up against the unbelieving world all the time. It might be that you uh, don't suffer as a Christian because you have a sort of equivalent of Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. Harry Potter has this cloak. He can put it on and he disappears from view. And some Christians do this. They go out of the church, they go out of the meeting, and they put the cloak on and nobody knows who they are. Let me challenge you, friend. You, You can't do that and be faithful to Jesus. Or it may be that your life The actual quality of your life is compromised so that people look at you and they don't see any difference between your way of life and the non-believing way of life. You drink just as much as anybody else. You say all the same kinds of words. Your attitudes are completely the same. You never stand up for Jesus. You tell the same dirty jokes. You're unrecognisably different from anyone else in the pagan world. Have you made compromises to please people? And maybe why you're not suffering. Or it may be that you're just never ready with an answer. Peter says, be ready with an answer when people ask you for the hope you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. Do you ever get asked, be ready to answer for the hope you have? Now if the answer to any of those questions is yes, are you living in a Christian bubble? Do you wear an invisibility cloak? Are you compromised? Are you never ready with an answer? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then let me say to you, friend, you've got to repent. Change now. At this moment, resolve, I will live differently. Not start meddling, but live for Jesus. Think of your brothers and sisters in Mosul, on the road up to Kurdistan, who've lost their house. How could you look them in the eye? I shunned a little bit of suffering there in Manchester. Where am I suffering? Why am I not suffering? Finally, let me close with this comment. How am I suffering? How am I suffering? How do I respond to hardship for for God? How do you respond to, to suffering in the Christian life? Do you expect an easy life following Jesus? Because that's not the territory. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote a hymn that I haven't sung for more than 30 years which may tell you something about the kind of songs we sing. Here's what he wrote. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? What a challenge to me and perhaps to you too. So what we need to do is always, always go back to the Lord Jesus who himself was known as, you know what? The suffering servant. The suffering servant. He fulfilled a prophecy 
about the suffering servant that Isaiah had written some hundreds of years before his birth. And here, I will finish with these words as we reflect on the promise, the privilege, and the paradox of suffering and on these three questions. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And as, like, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That's the Lord we follow, if we follow Jesus, the suffering servant. And if you've led a life of compromise or invisibility, and you realise that now, here's grace for you, friend. He knows you. He loves you. He called you to belong to him. He will keep you. He'll finish the work he began in you. So let's turn the corner today. Let's be ready to suffer well for Jesus and continue to do good. Shall we pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet, Father, we acknowledge that uh, your will is not done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven at this time. And at this time, we want to pray now as a body for those dear people, our brothers and sisters who've lost their homes, who've lost everything, some have lost their families, up in Mosul, in northern Iraq. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be very near to them, that your presence, the spirit of glory and of God would rest on them, and that you'd provide for them in all their needs in Christ Jesus, and you provide physically for them too. Father, please stop the evil in this world. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And for those of us here who live in relative ease, may we not be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, but be ready to play our part, to be faithful where you've put us, not to be meddlers, not to be arrogant, not to have an attitude of superiority, but to love those around us, especially those who insult and mock, so that some will be one for you and they will join us on this journey to heaven. We pray all these things in and for the great name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Saviour. Amen. Amen.